the environment is what might be creating barriers for people. And once we fix that difference in, in the environment, we all flourish to the best of our abilities. Engineering technologies are just endless. Instead of thinking about these things as accommodations for people with disabilities, think of them as superpowers. Hello. I would like to introduce myself very quickly. My name is Larissa Suzuki, and I'm a computer scientist, an engineer, a professor, an inventor. And I work at Google in the office of the CTO and also at NASA JPL as a visiting researcher. And I am neurodiverse, and I also have physical disability. And that affects a lot like my daily lives in terms of using a computer and working and seeing things and also sometimes interpreting things that are not very clear. And uh, there's so much we can do to make sure that industry works for people of all abilities and all kinds of minds. And that is so important for us to create a future that is going to be brilliant for all of us and the future generation. And I like to tell everybody that engineers, we are doctors for the world. And that's why we need every single person to help us in that journey. In this topic of disability, we're going to be talking about inclusion and also that feeling of belonging that is so important to us, especially as it relates to engineering. I think that once you have empathy for people with disabilities, you would become pretty excited about developing technologies to respond. So for this conversation, I'm joined by a close friend and colleague of many years, Vince Sir. So Vince is known as one of the founders of the internet. And since 2005, he has served as vice president and chief internet evangelist for Google. More than ever, accessibility is crucial in our industry. So join us in this podcast as together we engineer a radical vision for our future. So Vint, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Laura, it's always a pleasure to work with you, especially where we are at the moment at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a place that both of us revere for all of its accomplishments. But today, the topic is about accessibility and generally about neurodiversity and some of the other challenges that people have that we should be attending to. Let me say, first of all, that when we talk about people with disabilities, we often don't fully appreciate that most people who have disabilities don't think of themselves as disabled. They know that they have challenges, and they know, in fact, some of the most creative people in the world are the ones with disabilities that they have to overcome, which is why hiring people with disabilities is smart, because they're the ones with all the creativity. The other thing I'd point out is there's a statistic that's often quoted that says there are a billion people in the world with disabilities, and anything we can do to make them feel more welcome, to accommodate their needs, and to provide them with better accessibility will save or serve those billion people. What is not included in the equation is that all the people that they're interacting with that are also benefited by various accessibility and accommodation choices so that literally everyone in the world is benefited. And the last point I want to make is that everyone at one time or another may become temporarily disabled. And that's the point where you suddenly appreciate accommodations like wheelchairs and curb cuts and hearing aids and other kinds of things, even if it's only temporary. But for a lot of people, it's not temporary, it's persistent. But experiencing that condition, even on a temporary basis, 
can certainly change people's understanding of what it's like to cope with a persistent disability. Yeah, and that is so interesting because that brings us back to that notion of the difference in between the medical model of disability and the social model, yes? Because what we believe in, and I've been working with Vint for years, and what we believe together on this is that the environment is what might be creating barriers for people. And once we fix that difference in the environment, we all flourish to the best of our abilities. And that brings me to the point of talking a little bit about our experience with our own disability so that people can also appreciate how that also affects people differently. Because I think one point that we also want to come across is to not make assumptions about the ability or the conditions because it might affect people very, very differently. Well, first of all, I think your point about the environment creating a disability is really important. This is not always understood by people who don't think about it. They imagine that uh, if you're blind or you have a hearing impairment or you have a motor impairment, that that's all there is to it. And the point is that the environment may be inhibiting your ability to overcome those problems. And so we need to think more broadly than just personal medical intervention or intervention, in my case, with hearing aids. It's the rest of the environment. For example... In the um, cafeteria, it may be so noisy that even with the hearing aids, it doesn't help and I can't communicate. The environment is creating the disability, not my personal condition. And I think you've made a really, really good point for any company that's trying to think of how to make its employees who have these various disabilities feel welcome and a part of the community. They need to think about the uh, environment that they're creating in addition to uh, helping uh, someone with a disability remediate that with an accommodation. I want to talk a bit later after we talk about our own experience with our disability, also about this notion of accommodation. I find that sometimes it can be a little bit scary, let's put it this way, because one of the conditions that I have, for instance, ADHD and autism, is so good for me to have things like written so that I can follow and won't miss, skip steps. But when we label this as accommodation, sometimes it looks very difficult to implement. But let me give you an example. I've worked with several people that didn't call any accommodation, but said, oh, my preference is like, I want the letter to be Arial 12 and in bold this part. But that is not called accommodation because that is a personal style and preference that is acceptable and everybody comply with that. When we label this sometimes with accommodation, that becomes, oh, it's an obligation, but it's one of the things that I also want to bring into attention. First of all, it's a really good point that preference doesn't sound nearly as, uh, as much of an obligation as you say. I like that a lot. One of our most senior employees wrote something called his user manual. It was describing to everyone else how to interact with him to be most effective. And in fact, that's probably the first question you should ask a fellow employee is, what can I do to make our interactions most comfortable and effective? In my case, for example, because I'm hearing impaired, it's nice to meet in quiet settings or at least be tapped on the shoulder to know that they're talking to me. Otherwise, I might not notice that. And then they'll be angry because I ignored them. But I didn't. I just didn't hear them. So these sorts of questions, what can I do to be helpful, are good things to ask. And that shows up as a preference form rather than accommodation. 
At some point, we need to talk about technology because uh, there are some very powerful accommodations that technology offers. Yes. So let's go back to the time that we first noticed our disability. Could you please tell us a little bit about like your hearing impairment, how that affected you, and what are the things that you thought would be helpful to you at that time of like dealing with this? Well, I was born six weeks premature in 1943, and the only thing they knew to do was to stick you in an oxygen tent. And so the theory is that began this overexposure to oxygen began a progressive nerve loss. So my hearing gets worse by about one dB a year, but my hearing aids get better about by the same amount, so I kind of function okay. I didn't start wearing hearing aids until I was 13, although it was known before that that I had some hearing impairment, but the assumption was that I could function without assistance. I just sat in the front row. The problem is if somebody asked a question in the back row, I didn't hear the question. If the teacher said yes, I had no idea what that was all about. The hard part about wearing hearing aids when you're 13 is that's also when the guys discover girls. And I discovered that your hearing aids squeak when you're making out. And that's a problem because, you know, you, you know, take them off, then you can't hear. And if you leave them on, it squeaks. Eventually, I got past all of that. All of those things, though, helped me adapt to a hearing world. Do you feel that your disabilities somehow played a role into you deciding to become an engineer, like to work in engineering and technology? I don't think that the disability drove me into engineering. I was already certain I was going to be a scientist by the time I was 10 years old. I mean, it was very clear. But what did drive me in a particular direction, as you implied earlier about wanting to see text exchanges for clarity, for someone with a hearing impairment, email is wonderful. And so all of my jobs since the invention of email in 1971 have been connected with organizations that make heavy use of email. And for me, that's been super helpful, although some of us feel a little overwhelmed by 300 messages a day. But it's still helpful to have clear text instead of not-so-clear voice messages. Yeah, that is something that makes me to wonder, like your career as you decided to become a scientist and go to university, you ended up like doing master's and PhD research. How did you find kind of navigating the barriers with like accessibility during that time of you like having your professional development at uh, such an early age? Well, I was really lucky. I mean, the hearing aids actually work. And so I was functioning reasonably well in the hearing world. Actually, I might ask you the same question. Uh, you ended up doing your master's degree and your PhD, but you had this persistent condition, the ADHD and autism. Did that interfere with your ability to do the work? Well, for me, I can say, like, as you said for yourself, you found out you wanted to be a scientist and work in engineering very early age. And with me, it started happening when I was seven years old. I loved, like, you know, the Legos because I would bring an order and I wanted to build my world where I knew where things were, how things would happen, and I could make sure it would work very well for all my characters inside of like of my little game. I used to get like toys when I was a kid and electronic toys, I would put them apart because I wanted them to work differently. And people used to give me dolls. I didn't find them interesting. So I wanted them to do something like, want to make them to do differently stuff. That upset a lot of people. They started giving me clothing and socks only after they saw I would, you know, try to work on the electronics of those toys because I wanted them to do something different. And uh, 
Because I, I have autism, and when we bring this autism to the table, we also have to understand it's a spectrum. And because it's a spectrum, it's not a surprise that about one in 45 people around us, they are on the spectrum somehow, but we might not know it. What happens with me is that I am so interested in engineering technology. I wanted to fix things. And my dad was a civil engineer and he would tell me, oh, look, this place is being here for 2000 years. And I was like, oh, that is so boring. I want this place to move. So I was more on the mechanical engineering. So my dad and I, we had a lot of debates that I want stuff to move. And I think maybe that is also my ADHD. But my ASD, sometimes I consider this to be a superpower because with my ADHD, I do tons of stuff at the same time. I'm very like, yay, yay, all the time, doing tons of stuff. I'm very interested about everything. And if a butterfly comes around, I'm going to oh, follow the butterfly <laughs> at the same time. So this is how it works. However, my autism, because it makes me to be so interested in that, it always kept me on the engineering side. And I wanted to make the world to work for us in a way that would empower us to do great things that we wanted, like me getting my toys to do something different they were programmed to do, which I found boring sometimes. So I believe that my ASD helping me to keep my deep focus into the topic also helped me to explore all the wonders of engineering. I worked in smart cities, I worked in medicine, I worked in robotics. And so you the great thing about becoming an engineer that is very good for somebody with ADHD is that we are not restricted to any field of science. Several insights pop out for me. First one is that your interest in Legos and in engineering is trying to bring order out of chaos. If anyone has ever had a Lego set, you know that it goes the other way around. After you've assembled it and it becomes disassembled, entropy is yep. not your friend anymore. <laughs> chaos is everywhere. So engineers want to bring order out of chaos. So that's an obvious um, indication of your interest in engineering. I think the idea of wanting to get things to do what you tell them to do uh, is very much consistent with what computer programmers want to do. I got interested in computer programming because you have this computer and you get to tell it what to do and it's like a little universe that you're in charge of. Of course, you very quickly discover it does what you told it to do, but that might not be what you wanted it to do. And <laughs> yes. The difference between the two is called a bug. And I learned very early on that, that bugs were easy to create and hard to find. <laughs> and that's still true today. When I say like we engineers, we are doctors for the world, it's like we are helping to cure cancer and all those things. And also, it feels quite empowering that I can control things just with the power of my fingertips, of typing something and, you know, create software to do um, great things. I want to also now dive into, relating to your condition in terms of the hearing impairment, did you at any point in time had like interventions or something that you found to be helpful, like from a medical standpoint to help you also to overcome some of those things that technology could not overcome? Not really. Uh, hearing aids were the only solution available. There is a medical intervention for severe hearing impairment. It's called cochlear implants. Yeah. And although my hearing is pretty bad, it's largely recovered from hearing aids. My wife, on the other hand, lost her hearing completely when she was three years old. Yeah. She had uh, spinal meningitis and the uh, high temperature destroyed the ciliar hairs in the cochlea. So she was deaf for 50 years and only uh, was able to lip read, which is pretty amazing. She managed to get her college degrees and go to work as an interior designer, lip reading only. 
until 1996 when she got a cochlear implant for the first time, which works spectacularly well. Within about 20 minutes of turning all the equipment on, she made a phone call. We had a chance to talk on the phone for the first time in 30 years of marriage. By the time I got home, I couldn't get her off the phone. She was uh, just completely consumed. She'd answer any phone calls that came in. Uh, and now she recognizes accents, and she knows when people are mispronouncing words. But the technology is nothing short of spectacular, and you can augment it with microphones and FM transmitters and receivers and a variety of other things. The reason I dwell on this for a moment is, especially in the context of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, is that engineering of these kinds of technologies can have a really dramatic and positive yeah. effect True. to bring people uh, back to uh, a functionality that they otherwise wouldn't have. And so I think we should really appreciate the significant power of engineering to correct situations. Medical interventions are similar in some ways, but engineering technologies are just endless. They're just, the possibilities are just endless. Yes. And it also, um, I get to think a lot about like development and innovation in several other areas that and I want uh, to draw the attention to what I'm going to say to our listeners that a lot of things that we do with technology, we can also think about, oh, if I were to use this for accessibility purposes, would that work? I can give an example. I developed a neurologic amyotrophy in 2022, and that affected my dominant side of my body, which means like I have difficulty in walking and I have weakness. I'm still in pain and I had for many years on strong medications for the pain. And so I have my dominant side completely weak and I cannot use crutches because I, I'm not able to hold this because the, the leg I would need help is on the same one that my upper trunk is also weak. So I cannot make use of those. So that is like in terms of mobility. But if you think about working on a computer without being able to use, especially your dominant hand, is something that is quite difficult. And that's why technology becomes so impressively welcome because I started experimenting with dictation software, with like voice recognition, and now they are so good. They can capture my Brazilian English very well, like, <laughs> which is so interesting because I come from a family, a Japanese, Italian, Brazilian family. So you have accents and things from many different parts of the globe. And those dictation softwares, they're getting so powerful. And we look into the world of gaming. So they have eye-tracking devices and some technologies for us to immerse ourselves into the game. And a lot of those tools, they can be very valuable for also people needing accessibility into how they interact with computers, interact with transportation systems as well. Because like our right to the city of everybody going and commuting and having access to education, to job, is so important. And those accessibility tools might give opportunity for somebody who otherwise would be at home to actually take part into society again. You know, as I listen to this, it, it occurs to me that people who don't have any disabilities at all can also use these technologies. What if you needed a hands-free environment for some yes. reason, but you also needed to get things written down, then speech recognition is a powerful tool. I'm language disabled. I speak English and maybe a little German and a tiny bit of Russian, but and you speak more languages than that. 
But the computers that we have today are able to translate a hundred different languages, Indeed. you know, into different uh, different other languages. So these tools turn out to be extremely powerful for people who have no disabilities at all. And that's an important message to deliver. Instead of thinking about these things as accommodations for people with disabilities, think of them as, as you mentioned, superpowers. These are augmenting our capabilities. Yes, indeed. And I want to bring us back to something because you and I, we are very comfortable talking about disabilities and also the funny situations we found ourselves in <laughs> because of of uh, the difficulties that we might have navigating some spaces and with some barriers. I wanted to ask if you're comfortable <laughs> sharing with us like any kind of funny situation you found yourself in also because of like your uh, hearing impairment. Well, you know, if you don't hear clearly, uh, if you mishear something, it can be fairly weird. I remember one time I was asked for a glass of water, and I thought the person said, bring me a fly swatter. So I brought a fly swatter, and they were looking at me like, Is, what's the matter with you? Uh, you know, I thought you asked for a fly swatter. Uh, those sorts of things happen, you know, all the time. The other thing that happens, which is e almost equally funny, is that the captioning systems that we rely on are mostly pretty good, but every once in a while, the captioning system will misunderstand a word and it will put something up that the other person didn't say. And one of the things that the system detects is swear words. And so if it misunderstands that somebody was swearing on the other side and you're seeing the text coming up with little asterisks in it, it can lead to a very awkward conversation. So that's a case where the technology yeah. is actually interfering with good quality communication. Maybe we should sort of move this conversation in a slightly different direction. Let's talk a little bit about what technologies and what research would benefit people who have disabilities and are looking for uh, assistance. Mm -hmm. Assistive technologies are increasingly possible using computer technology, yes. especially. And artificial intelligence or machine learning has uh, made dramatic progress, I think, in the last decade or so. We use it for language translation. We use it for speech recognition. We use it for speech generation. People who have speech impairments can be understood with suitably trained software. So a lot of the technologies that are becoming available depend very heavily on computing power yes. and computational ideas. I wonder whether we will see some increasing opportunity for applications that are driven by increasing computer capability. Yes, I, I believe so, especially when we think about like the development of artificial intelligence, that it was also possible because of the hardware and how hardware became also convenient for us to carry and have this with us. So if you think about even those speech to text or like those capabilities for autocorrect on emails. So I have dyslexia and sometimes I like I invert words, the order of words and many other things. So that made my life to be much better. And the thing that it works with technology is like empowering our artificial intelligence to do the precision technology because we're not making assumptions that everybody is going to type in a particular way. It's not everybody that will have the same grip on a hand to use a particular accessibility device or even driving. When people talk about autonomous vehicles and I hear people saying, oh yeah, you can read a newspaper and the car drive by itself. I think 
consider about how many people there are in wheelchair today that they don't have, for instance, a driver to take them. Think about how that technology could also empower them. So I think when we think about technology development, we have to think about those things too. I would argue that we are on the cusp of some fairly dramatic developments in that regard. For example, the cochlear implants, which have been around in research and now in regular use since 1973, they became normal medical practice in the mid to late 1990s. You can imagine similar kinds of interventions for vision. It's going to require more development, though, to get high-resolution interfaces to so many of the nerve cells of the optic nerve. Same argument could be made for uh, motor impairment. If we can relay signals down the spine past an, an injury, you might be able to regain the use of limbs that were otherwise disabled. A lot of the engineering work to interface the neural system to computer-based systems are going to make a big difference in the future. Yes, indeed. I ask you, Vint, what message would you give, for instance, for people listening to uh, this podcast, especially the younger generation, thinking about like impact of engineering, how people can actually get into this and have that understanding on how to see the other application of technology to also serve for purposes of accessibility? Well, several things occur to me. The first one, though, and I'm hoping that those who listen to this podcast will appreciate and understand that people with disabilities have a, an innate appreciation for other people who have disabilities because they have a sense for what it is that they have to cope with. This empathy, I think, is something that everyone needs to develop. That's not the same as sympathy. It, it is simply empathy and appreciating what people have to do in order to overcome some of their challenges. That's the first point. The second point is that engineering is turning out to be dramatically powerful in terms of responding to some of the accommodations and assistive technologies that are possible and needed. And I think that once you have empathy for people with disabilities, you would become pretty excited about developing technologies to respond to some of those things. I think if I were to start my career all over again, I might find myself moving farther down that dimension than I have in the past. Well, that is it's, it's quite interesting. And I hope that researchers and especially people working in artificial intelligence can find different ways also to apply AI to make hardware much powerful, also to adapt each one of us like individually, because it goes back to our point. Do not make assumption how a disability affects one person can be completely different as it affects somebody else. That's such a good point. Don't make assumptions. In particular, don't decide for someone else what they're capable of doing. Indeed. You get to decide that for yourself, and you should insist on that. Sometimes uh, people don't realize that they should stand up for their disability, so to speak. And I know what I can do. You don't get to decide that for me. Although what the engineers who are listening to this or the aspiring engineers could say, I can do something for you that will help. And it's really fascinating to see where the future is going to get us, especially as we make equipment cheaper and smaller and more powerful and what artificial intelligence can do nowadays. Um, one thing that I also want to encourage people listening to this podcast is to read about the subject, read about accessibility, 
if you have a colleague that you know, for instance, that uh, disclosed to you, oh, I have, for instance, ADHD, don't put the burden on that person to try to explain everything to you. Try to educate yourself as well. Let's be curious and understanding each other. I feel like it's a very applicable here. Like Mary Curie, she said many years ago about something completely different. But remember a quote from her that is, nothing in life is to be feared, it's only to understand. Now it's time for us to understand more, so we might fear less. It's something like this. And when we think about disability and accessibility, I think this is so applicable. Let's understand more so that we can all make a very good use of technology and also the potential it has to enable all of us to achieve the best of our abilities. Well, it has been such an amazing experience being here talking to you about disability. Thank you so much, Vint. Well, thanks so much for a really interesting conversation. You have been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Larissa Suzuki, and produced by Tess Davidson. Look out for future episodes with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers exploring topics such as smart cities and life on Mars. To find out more, follow Kiwi Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.